And we want to talk about that this morning as we talk about the gospel. In fact, we want to talk about the shoes or being shooed with the gospel of peace. So since we're talking about shoes this morning, I thought I'd do a, a quiz just to find out what you know about shoes or how many you have. Okay, just to test this out. So let's start off with the quiz. Why are some shoes called sneakers? Here's the, here's the possibilities. Made of material that made little noise. Style of shoe worn commonly by thieves. Design in Eastern Europe where sneak means long-lasting or first designed by a fellow by the name of Joseph Sneaker. Okay, which one is it? A, B, C, or D? You sure? It is A. It is A. It was first made that way. What gender first popularized high heels? You got only one, two choices, folk. Just two choices, okay? Male or female? Let's, let's start off with that. It was the male gender. They wore them the most, and it was popularized. You want to know why? Guess why? It was, cowboys have for the same reason. Cowboys have a little bit higher heel. For the same reason they were in the Middle Ages. Because of horseback riding. And being with your feet in the stirrup hold. Uh, this one. What is the most expensive pair of shoes ever sold? Was it slippers from King Tut's tomb, Michael Jackson's spats, Elvis Presley's blue suede shoes, Dorothy's ruby red slippers, or Donovan Patrick's shoes sock thing? Okay. Donovan's not up there for real. Okay. Which one is it? It was Dorothy's slippers. The last one sold for 660000 Wow. Here's one. Platform shoes were very popular in 13th through 17th century. They got so tall that they would have to have somebody help them to walk in them. And so cities started passing laws because people were getting hurt by falling off their platform shoes. And they started limiting them. Okay? So why did people wear them back in that day? To show their high social status? To keep their clothes out of the dirt? To appear tall to enemies? To be above the rats and other critters that carried plagues? All of the above or none of the above? It is not all the above. I made up some of it. You never guess which ones. Okay. Which one do you think it is? It is not the rats. It is not the rats. It is A and B. A and B. So that they could keep their clothes a little cleaner and to show their high social status by falling off their platform shoes. On average, who has more pairs of shoes? Men or ladies? <laughs> there's, there's not even a hesitation on this one. It's ladies. Okay. What is the average number of pairs of shoes a lady in America owns? 50 is not it. Okay. The average number for America is 19. Let me add this. Let me add this. 15% have 30 or more pairs. Which that means some of you with 30 or more pairs, you're above average. Okay, that's how you sell it. Okay, question What is the average number of pairs of shoes that men have? Three. <laughs> Ten. Ten. In the course of typically a typical week, how many different pairs of shoes does an average person wear average week? How many different pairs? 
five is right, that you drive five different, but you have all of those others for backups or special occasions. So we're going to talk about shoes this morning, actually sandals. We're in Ephesians chapter 6. If you haven't been with us, we're going through the believer's armor. And he's describing the different types of the outfit that the Roman soldier wore. And we've been reading some of this passage every week. So let's read it again a little bit. You follow along. Ephesians 6, starting with verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace." So when we go through this text, what we found out, what we pointed out, that we are in a spiritual battle. We've talked about this from week to week, that this spiritual battle is dealing with satanic forces, demonic forces that are opposed to us, that are against us. We have good things happen, and then all of a sudden they come with temptation. They try to tear us down and build us up. And in order to have victory, and we can stand, we can be victorious, we can resist the enemy, we can withstand, as the passage says, but we have to have two things happen, or we need to do two things. One is we need to allow the Spirit of God to strengthen us. Be strengthened in the power of the Lord and in His might that he talks about at the beginning of the passage. Then we need to secondly, tw- uh, three, twice it says, we need to take to ourselves the armor of God. The whole armor of God. And included in that, he said, the one first by- item was the belt of truth. That was the idea of being truthful, being honest, being, being following through with what commitments you make. And so truthfulness in, and being, being genuine in our Christianity, that is critical. That is the beginning spot. Not false, not pretenders, not hypocrites. Then we talked about the last time that we talked about one of the items, talks about the breastplate of righteousness. And we pointed out that in ancient days they thought that this area was where you did your thinking, this is where you did your feelings, and therefore the idea is that we're supposed to be protecting our minds and our feelings by determining to be Christ-like and how we respond in how we think how we treat other people. So putting on Christ-like righteousness every day, becoming more like Jesus Christ. And so we had that idea. Now we're at this passage being shoot or shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. This one's a little bit more difficult. And so what happens as we, we go through it, we want to make sure we understand exactly, literally, what the command is. The verse starts with, all of you begin to stand. It's a command. To begin to hold your position And then he goes on, after having laced up. Literally, that's the word. After having laced up yourselves with the... And the King James has preparation of the gospel of peace. Do some of you have readiness in your Bible? Yes, no? Instead of the preparation of the gospel of peace, what do you have? Readiness? Okay, in some of the translations. This is the word. It only appears this one time in the New Testament. So it gets a little bit harder to figure out what did he mean by that one word. It occurs six, uh, seven times if you have the Greek Old Testament. There are seven times that the word shows up and it is split in how it's used. And so here are the possibilities of this term. Making preparations to be secure, to be firmly established, to be you know, holding a position in that regard, sure-footed, 
being sure-footed, or the idea is confidence. I'm going I'm to work with that for the most part. The idea of having real confidence in what? In the gospel of peace. And so in order to really just dissect this, let's ask ourselves a couple questions. Actually, three of them this morning. And let's develop the thought pattern this way. Let's start off with this question. What, in order to figure this out, what were Roman soldiers' shoes like? What did they wear? What, were, what was their purpose, their benefit? So that would help us to figure out what is the confidence of the gospel. In ancient times, the Roman soldiers had a really thick soled shoe. Uh, did I say that right? sole on their shoe. An inch, inch and a half. And in that sole they would have it all wrapped up with the different leather straps and they would strap it up the bottom part of their leg to make sure that it was secured. The bottom part of the shoe was often studded with different types of metal or sharp stone so that if they were marching along they could have really good footing and or if they were in a defensive position it was like wearing cleats in sports. And so they could be getting their feet secured this way. The thickness of the sole of the sandal was very important because often peoples in the ancient world to slow down the Roman armies. There are three major uh, armies, empire builders, that were noted for the ability to move their troops quickly. One was the Romans, one was Alexander the Great, and the other one was Napoleon. And the one, they were all three of those, those different empires. They were very well known for quick marches, getting armies moved in a, in a very extraordinarily fast sense. Part of it is because of the shoes they wore. That they could march a distance, their feet wouldn't be sore, and so they would be able to protect their feet. And many peoples in the ancient world try to slow down the Roman army by putting things like bungee sticks in the roads or in paths that the Roman army would be crossing. And these shoes, these particular sandals, they helped out the Roman army to be able to protect their feet from those types of things. And so they could march long distances. They had sure footing. And so when you look at that and say, okay, now Paul's looking at a soldier and he's saying, have your shoes similar to the Roman sandals that are something very, very solid, something that you could get sure footing. What does he mean by that? having confidence in something that is really solid. He calls it the gospel of peace. Being confident in the shoes of the gospel of peace. What's he getting at? He's telling us this, that it is essential that we are shooed with this confidence before the battle begins. Why do we say that? Because he gives the command, he says, that need to take the armor after having shooed, or you need to begin to stand after having shooed yourself. So the idea is make sure you have this confidence in the gospel before you get into an engagement. So before you leave here, before you start going through the week, you have to make sure I've got this sure footing, this confidence in the gospel of peace. That has to come first or I'm going to get blown away. I'm not going to be able to stand. This is something for each and every one of us. Very, very clearly, you all begin to shoe yourselves. Take to yourselves. It isn't something I can do for my wife, my kids, grandkids. It's something you can't do for anybody else. You've got to be able to have this confidence that he's talking about. This sure footing. What is it? It has to do with the gospel of peace. And so that brings us to this idea exactly what is he talking about when he says the gospel of peace? What should we be confident in when it comes to the gospel of peace? There are three possibilities. All three are very valid. So rather than pick one, I'm going to share all three. And I think all three are what he's talking about to some degree. Number one is this. Number one, you need to have confidence in the good news of peace 
with God. Good news or the gospel, which is good news, peace with God. What do we mean by that? What are we talking about when we say having peace with God? Well, that takes us back to the very basic of the gospel message. The gospel tells us clearly, the good news, the Bible, says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. That's every single one of us. All of us have, have come to this point that we have sinned. This week, several of the people in the verse hearing, this week several of the people in talking with the kids after the chapel time tried to just make sure they understood that we are all sinners. And that includes you. That includes me. The Bible makes it very clear. Then the Bible says not only are we sinners, but there is a penalty for sin. There's a wage for the sin. The wages of sin is death. Or as John wrote in his gospel, he that believes not the Son shall not see life. The wrath of God abides on him. In other words, this is our natural state. Our natural state is we're sinners. As sinners, we are separated from God. The wrath of God is, is resting upon us. It's hovering. We are in danger of being condemned to being separated from God for all eternity. In other words, we're in danger because of our sin. No matter how little, big, whatever it is, the wages of sin is death. We're in danger of being put into hell. Every single one of us, because we're sinners. None of us are good enough. We've fallen short of the glory of God. None of us can work our way into heaven. We can't say to God, I am good enough. I am perfect enough. You have to allow me into heaven. It's like, no. He doesn't allow anything that's sinfully tainted, that's not covered by the blood of Christ, into heaven. And so what happens is we're under the wrath of God, which he talks about in Colossians. We had a whole series year and a half ago, that talked about we are the children of disobedience by nature. We know that. When we were little kids, we were disobedient. All of us did these things. We lied. We got angry. We, we didn't obey our parents. And then we grew up and we continued in some of those steps to different degrees. The children of disobedience, the wrath of God is upon them. That's all of us. And so what he's talking in this passage is that at one time in our lives, those who are believers that he's writing to, at one time in their lives they were enemies of God. They were separated from God. But he says, we were reconciled to God by the death of Jesus Christ. He goes on, being reconciled, we are saved by his life. Not our good works, not our coming to church, we are reconciled. This, this division between us and God is put to rest. We are restored to fellowship like Adam and Eve got, you know, their disobedience came to us and cast out of the Garden of Eden. But we are going to be able to enter into heaven not because of our good works, our good looks, our country, our money, but because of what Jesus did. Jesus re reconciles us to God. Jesus restores that relationship. In fact, now in Christ Jesus, you who were afar off at one time are made near by the blood of Christ. He is our peace. He is our peace, for through him we have access unto the Father. In other words, the gospel, the good news of peace with God is Jesus has died, buried, and risen to give you forgiveness. That's the good news we're talking about. That we can have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says, hey, you've got to be confident in this good news. No matter what you've done in your past, the Apostle Paul was a murderer. A zealous religious man, but he killed people, innocent people. He even says later on, he says, I was the chiefest of all sinners. Though I was very religious, my heart wasn't there. I did this in pride. I did this in anger. I did this in vengeance. 
And he said, I was the most wicked of the individuals. But it's Jesus Christ who forgave him of his sins that reconciled him to God because Jesus took upon himself the penalty of Paul's sin and suffered the hell for Paul. That's the same thing Christ has done for you. And that gives you peace with God. Now here's his point. To be shewed with the confidence of the, go of the gospel of having peace with God, you need to be confident that you're born again, that you are saved. That's where it starts. Because if you aren't confident, if you aren't sure that you are saved, man, the Satan's going to have a heyday with you. Satan's going to be able to knock you down, tempt you time and time again. But you have no confidence. Now some of us, hey, we grew up, we grew up in a church or churches that told us nobody can know for sure they're going to heaven. Some are growing up in churches that says you can lose your salvation. God might take it away if you do something bad. Well, there's no confidence. You don't know if you're on your way to heaven. You don't know if you're doing good enough if you're relying upon works. He's writing to us who are believers in Christ, and he's saying, he said, these things have are written unto you that believe that you may know that you have eternal life. God doesn't want you to be guessing. God doesn't want you to be hope-sowing. God wants you to know in the depth of your heart, yes, you are headed for heaven because of Jesus Christ. You need to be confident in that. You need to be certain in that. You need to be standing firm against the attacks by saying, I know that I'm a child of God. I don't deserve it, but I know that Jesus Christ, he has saved me. He is going to be on my side. Do you know for sure you're headed for heaven? Some people, this is me, when I got saved at 16, I went through a period of a few years where I doubted. I didn't know. I wasn't confident Man, there was, there was no resisting some temptations because I just didn't know. I didn't have any sure footing and I had the doubts and I sat under messages and I don't know, am I or aren't I, am I? You know, it was like, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. It was a terrible time. It was an awful time. No spiritual strength at all. Be confident. Know for sure that you are going to be in heaven one day. That even if you sin now, that you have an advocate who is defending you against the enemy. So he writes to us and says, okay, I want you to be shooed with this confidence. You want to see the confidence portrayed in Scripture? Go with me to Romans chapter 8. Please turn there. Romans chapter 8. This is a, this is a passage that if you follow the whole the book of Romans, he talks about sinfulness. He talks about how we're supposed to be punished for our sin and should be because that is the way God set it up. Then he talks about how Jesus gave his life. Then he talks about how God is working. And then in chapter 8 he gets to this point where you are secure. And he starts in chapter 8 with these words after, remember the end of chapter 7? He says, oh, woe is me. The things that I would, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, I do. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? How can I finally get victory over sin? And after he's bemoaning the fact that he is still struggling, he says in the end of chapter 7, verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so with the mind I serve the, serve the law of God, but with the flesh I still have this problem, the law of sin. But here's the beauty. There is therefore now what? No condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the spirit of the flesh. Jump further into the text. 
Jump down to the, the last few verses of the chapter. Moreover, whom God, verse 30, whom God did predestinate, that is, he determined that they would be conformed to the Son, them he called. Whom he called, he justified. Whom he justified. Do, do you see this? He also glorified. It's in the past tense. Even though it hasn't happened. You haven't been glorified yet. But it is so certain in the mind of God, it's already occurred. He says, you've been glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything at the, to the charge of God's elect? In other words, who's going to accuse you? Well, we know who the accuser is. But what's the response? It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died. He rather that is risen again. Who is even at the right hand of God who also makes what for us? Intercession. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation, distress, persecutions, famines, nakedness, peril, or sword? For it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. No! In all of these things we are more than Hypernike, super conquerors, through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in... Be confident in that. That's what you need to be confident in. Confident that says, I know I am saved. I know I'm not perfect. I know I still blow it. But I know that if I come to the Father, He is faithful and just to forgive me my sins if we confess our sins. And I'm His child. Are you confident in that? That's having confidence in peace with God. But there's another peace. The peace of God. Do you remember where this is spoken about in the Bible? The peace of God. It's in the book of Philippians. In the book of Philippians, if you flip over there, he talks about the peace of God and he describes it. You're back in Ephesians chapter 6. Go just a little bit over to your right and you're going to come to Philippians and then you're going to chapter 4. And in chapter 4, he makes this comment. He says, starting in verse 5, he said, starting verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, Rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men, for the Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And what happens? And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. He's calling the believers to this point. Be confident in your peace with God. What's that peace with God? What's he talking about? Well, looking at Philippians 4, he says that this peace with God is something that's unexplainable. It's indescribable. It's, it's like these situations that over the last three, four weeks, we have had some very serious situations happen in our church. Some life and death matters. Some extreme, they've, they've come like, like an inundation of a flood that has caused a lot of discomfort, unease, loss of sleep, challenges to people with physical, with family situations. It's been a rough last month 
in this body of difficulties and challenges. How is it that those people are going through it? How is it that you face a life and death situation? You face an uncertain situation. You face, you get the news of car accidents or pending surgeries. How is it that you're able to continue to, to be able to worship and not get bitter? It's the peace with God that passes all understanding. The peace with God that gives you the ability and the strength to endure through most difficult situations. It's the peace of God that gets you so that you don't want to, inside you say, I want to quit. No, I don't want to quit. It's the peace of God that helps you to function. And more and more in these last few weeks, I've heard this so many times, how do people do this without Christ? How do they handle these life trials? How do, you, how do they go through it? It's an unexplainable peace, but it is powerful. The word for keeping your minds and your hearts it has the idea of securing, protecting, keeping it so it doesn't get destroyed. It is protecting, not, destroy, not, not hurting, helping. And he's saying this is the peace of God that helps families, that helps individuals go through death or illness or financial catastrophe or struggles or, or school issues or friends issues. It protects your minds and hearts. It, it is this indescribable peace that God gives that, yes, you're going to have those moments of, this is tough, but I'm not going to go into depression. I'm not going to take it out on everybody around me. I, I'm not going to fret to the point that I can't function. I'm not going to get angry at God or at others. I will maintain a forgiving spirit. And I'm going to maintain a reliance upon the Lord. It is... It is the peace that passes understanding that allows you to say God is good even when I'm facing some of the most horrific situations in my entire life. When I feel like I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Now because of that, this is me. I don't want to answer phones anymore because I'm afraid what's going to come next. But it's the peace of God that protects and I know that God will give you the strength to go through the trials you're going through and the challenges because it's this peace with God that you're a believer and as a father he doesn't ever do anything that's harmful to you but he does everything that is good for you it hurts but it is good because God is always good it's that peace with God that maintains and sustains so that you're able to say in the middle of your tears to God be the glory great things he has done. God is going to use this for his glory. It, is, it comes, this peace comes by what this passage talks about. Praying. With praying and supplications. With trusting. With believing. Which allows you by to, uh, the ability to even thank God in the middle of the trials. It's Daniel. We talked about this just a few weeks ago. Daniel is living for the Lord. He's an old man by this point, much older than me. He's an old man. And Daniel is there. He's huge in the kingdom. He's like second in command, but he's got people who are jealous of him. They want to get rid of him. Can you imagine politicians trying to get rid of each other? And so they want to wipe him out. And so they pass a law that they know, they can't find anything wrong with Daniel, so they pass a law that says you can't pray to anybody but the king. They know Daniel. They know Daniel will break that law because Daniel will refuse to pray to a man. Daniel's going to pray to 
God, Jehovah. And so he passed the law, and the penalty is you get thrown in a lion's den if you pray to anybody but the king. The king got snuckered into this thing, got caught up into this by his own pride. And soon as Daniel is brought before him, because what does Daniel do? Daniel goes and prays. And the passage says that Daniel, he goes and prays as he did a time. He didn't stop praying three times a day. So they were waiting. They were watching. They arrest him. They bring him to the king. And as soon as they bring him to the king, the king goes, oh man, I got, I, boy did I fall for this one. And now Daniel's in great trouble. And Daniel ends up being thrown in a lion's den. You all know the story. And in this passage, it says this, and Daniel gave thanks. You're thanking God that you're being persecuted? You're thanking God that you're getting arrested and thrown into jail for doing right? You're thanking God that the king was an idiot? You're thanking God that you're going to be lunch meat for the lions? He gave thanks. That's called peace with God. And so what happens, you all know that he gets thrown in the lion's den. And then the passage says, and he survived because he believed God. It's added. And then when the king comes early in the morning and says, Daniel, are you still there? Daniel's first thing is, how are you king? He's concerned about the king when he, his life is being threatened. Do you have that type of peace? That's peace with God. That's that peace with God when you're, when you're on your cross that you're bearing. And in the pain and in the agony, you're concerned about others. You're forgiving to others. That's peace with God. That's what Paul had when Paul was arrested for preaching the gospel, for doing what's right. He gets to the city of Philippi and he is arrested and beaten. There he is when he's beaten, when he's tortured, when he's bruised, when he's bloodied. And what does he do at midnight? At midnight, I'm sleeping. I don't know about you. Midnight sleeping. Okay, some of you do it pretty good at 11.20 in the morning. Okay, but at midnight it's sleeping. And especially, he, there he is, he's in pain and he's agony. What does the passage say that he does? He is praising God, giving thanks to God, singing songs and giving thanks and praise to God. In the middle of a persecution, how did he do that? Peace with God. Peace with God. And then you read further on in the passage in Philippians where he talks about one of his dearest of friends. One of his dearest of friends, Epaphroditus. He says Epaphroditus was dying. And he said, I was going to have sorrow upon sorrow that I was going to lose my friend. But the Lord intervened, answered my prayer, and he said he recovered. But at the moment he didn't know. That's when he's writing, rejoice, and again I say... Rejoice. How can he rejoice when his heart is breaking over losing one of his dearest companions? Peace with God. Peace with God. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, without complainings. Peace with God. That is what he could be talking about in this text. I think it's part of it. Where he says, make sure you have peace with God so that no matter what comes your way, you're able to praise you're able to give thanks. You're able to stand against the, the wicked one who comes with discouragement and anger and revenge and, uh, and a hatred and vile speech against others. Stand with a peace with God and a peace of God. I was reading a true story. 
Gene Edwards wrote about an experience. He was a preacher, an author that traveled around the United States a number of years ago, and he was in Jerusalem. And he got up early one morning. He went to what is supposedly the grave site of Jesus. Some of you have been to Jerusalem. You know where I mean, in the garden area. And he was outside sitting there. He was reading his Bible and writing down his thoughts early that dawn morning. And while he was sitting there, he saw two ladies come to visit the tomb as well, very early in the morning. And as he watched them, the one, they, they stepped inside of the tomb to gaze inside. And this is several decades ago. Then they came back out and they stood there and that's when he got the full the vision of the, the sight of the full face of the one woman. And immediately he recognized her. He, he had even read her story up to this point. He immediately recognized this is Helen Keller. Anybody ever hear of her? Okay. The girl who is blind, deaf, mute as well. Okay, and totally in her own little world until her, her teacher came and dealt with her. And so he's watching her and he's thinking, she is one of the people I've read about. She is kind of like a heroic figure in his mind. And he wanted to go and meet her. Now, she had changed guardians by this point or people who were her assistants. She was on a world tour speaking. If you know her story, that she eventually taught herself the ability to be able to speak and did public speaking. And uh, maybe you don't know this part of her story. After she was able to communicate, even as a young teen, and she was trained, Anne, who's Anne? Well, Anne? Ann Sullivan, thank you. Ann Sullivan had trained her. One of the first pair of people that her dad insisted come and speak with her repeatedly was the preacher. And the preacher came multiple times, communicated with her, and she got saved as a young teenager and prayed to ask Christ to be her Savior. Here she is now, years later, going on a world tour. She comes out of the tomb. This Gene Edwards wants to go over and talk with her and see if she'll, you know, he can have a moment just to speak with her. And all of a sudden, he's watching her, and she's doing this. And she starts yelling out loud these words. There is no darkness here. There is no darkness here. Somebody you can't see, can't hear, had to learn to speak out of that situation has a peace with God and a peace of God to be able to say, no matter what my difficulty, there is no darkness here. Do you have that type of peace? The peace of God that passes all understanding? You're supposed to. It's available. You're supposed to shoe yourself with this. You're supposed to have that type of a prayer life, that life, that type of a life of thanksgiving, that type of life of trusting that you get the peace with God and the peace of God. Then I think there's a third aspect here. The third aspect has to do with the word shoeing. It has to do with the word lacing up. Many people assume that what's happened is the writer who is writing these words, he immediately is bringing in a phrase from the Old Testament about the idea of walking and beautiful feet, taking out the gospel. It comes from a passage in the book of Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, it reads this, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that brings good tidings. Do you remember how this worked in the Old Testament? You didn't have texting. I know some of you will find that hard to believe. You didn't have cell phones. And didn't have any type of mechanical ways of getting messages. You would send, like from a battlefield, 
He would send the messenger who would run along as fast as he could, and as he approached the city, in the Jewish culture, he would yell out, Shalom! Shalom! Which would indicate peace or victory. And so he's talking about the person, how beautiful are the mountains are, the feet of him that brings these types of good tidings to our city. And he publishes peace. That brings good tidings of good. That publishes salvation. That says unto Zion, thy God reigns. Do you remember where this is in the New Testament? This part of this passage is quoted. It comes from the book of Romans. How shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. So a number of scholars conclude that this text is a text that he's talking about not only confidence that you're saved, confidence that you have the peace of God to handle difficulties, but you are confident in sharing the gospel. You are prepared. You are set you are readied. You say that I can give out the gospel to people that Satan is trying to blind. We're in a spiritual battle for the souls of men. Satan's trying to blind them. He's trying to snatch away the word of God to take away when the seed is planted. And you, he says, you need to be readied to give out the gospel, to distribute it, to cast it around. And so strike a blow for the kingdom of God against Satan by sharing the good news. Which brings us to this question. Are you ready to share the gospel? Do you know what you would share? Do you have verses that you have memorized that you could bring up that you could share? Do you, do you strap on verses in a way that you have them laced up in your heart, in your mind, on your person so that all of a sudden you could be laced up with the gospel via a tract and give it out? Do you do that on your face page, on your media presentations? Do you share the gospel? Do you talk about your faith in Jesus Christ? Do you look around and see people, not just that they're good people, but do you see them as souls that Jesus died for, that he is craving that somebody shares the word with them? Do you warn people about the danger of an imminent hell? If they were to pass away and without Christ they will have the wrath of God abiding on them and you have what they need to avoid that. Are you sharing it? Are you giving it out? Do you, do you have confidence in the gospel in the sense that you believe it is the power of God into salvation? That the word of God can penetrate the, the, the hardest of hearts and bring about the seed of the gospel sprouting. The other night I came back and just went through a parking lot, did some weeding and spraying because it just needed it really badly this week. And when I'm walking across the lot, I found about three or four spots and it's like, there's hardly a crack in the, in the tar. How did some seed get down in there and now we got a weed growing in the middle of the parking lot? How did that happen? It is amazing how the power of the gospel can get in a hard heart and it can make a difference in a life. I mean, you want to see it true in action? Look at the people sitting around you. How the Word of God has transformed people in this room. How the Word of God has penetrated. We saw it this week with several of the children responding. Oh, and some of our workers did such a fantastic job. Well, they all did, but in particular, the counseling. Some of the workers they were... were, were 
careful, cautious. I don't want to mislead the child. I don't want to force the child to pray a prayer and then the child doubt. And so we had on more than one occasion where the worker after Pastor Tony preached in here and he had the kids come and sit up here to talk to a leader afterwards while the rest would go to their snack time. And so they had to choose to sit and talk about Jesus or to go to snack time. Make it a little bit difficult. And some of the kids would sit here and the leaders talked with them and they said they just didn't fully comprehend the idea yet of Jesus, you know, their sin and Jesus died for them. And there was two occasions that I know of. Two of these occasions that the worker said, why don't you think about it? Why don't you think about it? The next day, the one of the kids came back and one of the kids, when they gave the chapel time, they gave the invitation, the kid came right up to the worker and said, I did that this morning at home before Bible school. Isn't that sweet? An eight-year-old kid prays on their own to get saved because they were thinking about it. The seed of the Word of God. And there was another case. Same type of thing. Kid went home and prayed with one of the grandparents here. How sweet that the Word of God can help children and can save their souls. Do you believe that? Do you believe the Word of God is powerful enough to change a life to give somebody eternal grace forever and ever, to make them a child of God, then share it. Be confident in sharing it. Be prepared to share it. Give out the Word of God. Don't keep it to yourself. So this week I ask you this. Are you sure you're saved? If not, get shooed with the confidence of the gospel. Make sure you're saved. If you have doubts, deal with it. Talk with somebody before you leave. Make sure you have the confidence that you have this peace with God. Make sure that in your life this week, you're having a prayer time. You're having a trust time. You're having a thanksgiving time. So you can experience that peace that passes understanding for whatever lay ahead. Please, friend, do this. Be shooed this week with this confidence of the peace that God will give. What you need to do is make an effort to give out the gospel. Learn the verses. Take the tracks. Invite people. Come back this evening and share the gospel with us as we have conversations. Put yourself in a place of preparation where you can make a difference. But don't just walk away and just say, hey, that was okay. That Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. We are in the evil day. You need to stand for Christ. Won't you do that this week? Father, I thank you for the attentiveness of these good people. But I pray for the hearts of these good people. I pray that their hearts would determine that they want to be shooed with the gospel. If there is anyone here with any kind of doubts, please, Lord, help them to realize the importance of this text saying they got to deal with the doubt, doubts. they got to make sure or they won't have victory. If there's any here who are being beaten up by the trials of life, help them to come to you in a closer fellowship with you to have that peace that passes all understanding. For the many here who are knowledgeable, who are well-trained, well-versed, give them that desire in their hearts to share the gospel of peace with confidence. Help them to be witnesses. Lord, in this world, we've got all kinds of shoes. We wear them with our outfits, but this is a pair of shoes, confidence in the gospel that is critical 
to our life from this day forward. Help us to be laced up with the Word of God. And before we close, I want to give an opportunity for anyone who has doubts, anyone who is uncertain of their eternal destiny, I want to give you this opportunity to go and talk with somebody. There are people moving, our staff is moving to the right side of the auditorium where there's double doors. And while the instrumentalist plays through just quietly a hymn, if you are here today and you are not, not confident you're headed to heaven, you can know. Then why don't you just get up, excuse yourselves while people's heads are bowed, eyes are closed, and go and talk to one of those men ladies standing over at the side of the auditorium. They'll talk to you in private. They'll share the word of God. If you have doubts, please go and talk with somebody this day. Become confident in the gospel of peace. Today's the day. This is the moment. Father, again I thank you for these folk and their attentiveness. Give us a blessed afternoon and help us this evening to come back and have impact with the Word of God. Thank you for the many labors of these folk. Thank you for their attendance this day. Give us a sweet time of fellowship and ministry through the rest of this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.